0: You're listening to On The Verge, a podcast about solving the security risks of the 21st century, produced by the Council on Strategic Risks. Tune in for expert interviews about some of today's most pressing existential problems, including climate change, global pandemics, bioweapons, and nuclear proliferation. We'll discuss some of the major challenges and outline potential solutions for preventing worst-case scenarios. At the Council on Strategic Risks, we believe that we are on the verge of a better tomorrow. Hey, everyone. My name is Natasha Bajma. I'm the director of the Converging Risks Lab at the Council on Strategic Risks. So we're continuing with this episode, a series on arms control. A major focus of the Janney Nolan Center on Strategic Weapons at CSR is a project that seeks to reimagine arms control. What do I mean by that? Well, in the past, arms control has been bilateral, that is, between the US and Russia. It has dealt with number reductions of nuclear weapons, and it has centered on the negotiation of formal treaties. None of these are bad things, but we've reached a point in the success of arms control, which if we are to continue reducing nuclear weapons, We have to move beyond numbers to look at reducing risk. We need to include other countries besides the US and Russia. We also need to be open to new approaches beyond negotiated treaties so that we can make progress on the important work of reducing the risk of nuclear war. In this episode, I interview Andy Weber and John Gower again. This time, we talk about their proposal for a sole purpose nuclear doctrine and why it's not only achievable, But critical to jumpstarting the arms control agenda of the Biden administration. Let's go to the interview. Today, I'm speaking to Andy Weber and John Gower about the purpose of nuclear weapons. Andy is a senior fellow at the Council on Strategic Risks. He is the former Assistant Secretary of Defense for nuclear, chemical and biological defense programs, and has spent decades working to reduce the risk of nuclear war. Rear Admiral John Gower is a Senior Advisor at the Council on Strategic Risks until his retirement in December 2014. He was the Assistant Chief of Defense Staff in the UK's Ministry of Defense. As part of this, he was responsible for all, for all aspects of arms control and counterproliferation. Andy John, welcome back to On the Verge.
1: Thank you, Natasha. Thank you very much. Good to be back.
0: So last time we talked about how to reimagine arms control and get back into the business of reducing the risk of nuclear weapons. In the next few episodes, we're going to be talking about some specific proposals for moving the arms control agenda forward. And today we're gonna talk about the sole purpose nuclear doctrine as something you both have recommended that the next administration pursue. But before we get to that, I wanna set the context for the audience. In the past, nuclear weapons have generally been used for defense and deterrence, But also throughout the Cold War, there was a heated debate about whether the limited use of nuclear weapons was also possible. And that controversy hinged upon whether or not experts thought escalation could be controlled once nuclear weapons were used. Can you both speak to um, the history of nuclear deterrence and how nuclear weapons have been used in the past?
1: Yeah, I'm very happy to lead on this. And then Andy can come up, bearing in mind that most of my uh, speaking comes from the UK perspective but also uh, during the period of the Cold War from 1978 till the fall of the Berlin Wall, I was at sea in active duty. And it's fair to say that for the majority of that time, it was an assumption that nuclear weapons would be an inescapable element of a conflict with the Warsaw Pact for a whole host of reasons. And largely that was because they had entered the psyche of both sides as an important part of a ladder of escalation that saw conventional and nuclear as simply different scales of conflict. And I think that is the significant difference between what we advocate now and what has been necessary or deemed necessary in the past. Nuclear weapons started in the 50s as almost sole purpose weapons. That's why the Soviet Union got hold of them after the use in Japan at the end of the Second World War. That's why other countries raced to get them. They then expanded into just another big weapon, and we've achieved some contraction. What we suggest here is a complete contraction, if you like, back to the ab initio state.
2: I agree. We need to strengthen the taboo against the use of any nuclear weapons, even so-called low-yield nuclear weapons. Um, in, during the, the dark days of the Cold War, where we were concerned of, that Europe would be overrun by the vastly superior um, uh, conventional forces of, of the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact, we felt that we would have to use so-called tactical nuclear weapons early to stop uh, the forward movement of those forces um, into Western Europe. And in in a sense, as John said, we were envisioning the use of these smaller nuclear weapons as just uh, battlefield weapons. And I think that's the wrong way. It's a dangerous way to think about nuclear weapons. Crossing that threshold opens a Pandora's box that is potentially uncontrollable and could lead very quickly to a full-scale nuclear Armageddon.
1: Yes, I think the other side of it, which is which is what has changed since the end of the Cold War is a, a reflex back to the nuclear weapon to counter emerging or hazardous challenges that come without a direct counter. And I specifically refer to chemical and biological weapons, but also I suspect in the near future. Uh, as has been presaged in the 2018 NPR, massive cyber attacks, potentially AI and machine learning, and something else that we haven't seen coming over the horizon. And I've characterized this as strategic laziness, because you just lean on nuclear weapons in in an ever-increasing spectrum of potential responses. And this is destabilizing. And the more easy to use and the more breadth you give your nuclear weapons, the more likely the taboo is to be broken.
0: Yeah, I think destabilizing are you are you referring to also a lack of credibility that if you stretch the potential use of nuclear weapons in response to ever greater numbers of situations that your threats become less credible?
1: I think I think there is a credibility issue now. I think personally my view and this is not the view of the UK government my personal view is the likelihood of the UK despite having these caveats in its negative security assurances for its use of nuclear weapons. It has caveats allowing the thought of it for large-scale chemical and biological attack and that's the same caveat that the US and France and other nuclear weapon states have. The likelihood of the UK being the first user in anger since 1945 of nuclear weapons in response to any of those attacks is so small as to be ludicrous and unbelievable and therefore the credibility of that response is is not enough to achieve the deterrence effect that they seek there's a double problem though however and that is if your leadership is one for whom credibility is a personal ego issue and there are a number of leaders around today who that cap fits directly then it doesn't matter almost it is more likely that the the reason you'll respond is not because it's the right thing to do it's because that it's, it's a sort of reverse psychology of credibility. And I think that's where the stability loss comes from, in that it, it in order to bolster future deterrence, someone responds to something that they just shouldn't be responding to with nuclear weapons. And so the way out of this corridor, this this maze of credibility, depression, breadth of nuclear response to things that really just shouldn't be thought about with a nuclear response is the clarity of a sole purpose declaratory policy. And we'll come on, I hope, to explain the benefits that those bring really without loss to national security of the nation or nations that adopted.
0: Yeah, before we go there, um, Andy, I'm curious, do you, how, do you envision US leaders ever using a nuclear weapon in response to anything other than strategic use of nuclear weapons?
2: No, I don't, and which is why I think um, President-elect Biden is going to uh, change our declaratory policy to one that states clearly the sole purpose of nuclear weapons is to deter their use against the United States and our allies. And that is exactly what we need, is, is a very clear policy along those lines because I don't envision a limited nuclear war. And importantly, I don't want our potential adversary, uh, President Putin, to think that if he uses a small nuclear weapon in a conventional conflict that we won't respond in a big way. I want him to be deterred and feel that uh, he puts his whole country at risk using even a small nuclear weapon. I don't want him to think that we would just use a like small nuclear weapon in response to that, and somehow that would stay in a small-scale regional setting along the Polish border or the border with the Baltics and not involve Moscow and Washington and New York. I think even talking about using uh, smaller scale nuclear weapons in a limited war fighting scenario actually undermines deterrence.
1: I think Andy's made the critical point here and I wanted to reinforce it. The, 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 there are two uh, reinforcements I want to make. Firstly, the likelihood, ge- Andy's uh, alluded to the likely geography, but the likelihood that the United States and Russia risk such a local small nuclear exchange, which I believe, contrary to popular belief in both capitals, cannot and will not be controlled, the escalation from that. But the most likely place is on the territory of the of Europe between the two. And I think that that fact alone means that the, the likelihood, the threshold is reduced because you are If you believe you're going to contain it to um, a small exchange and it's not on either of your homeland territories, then human nature being what it is, that threshold is necessarily lower. And the other factor I think that's important is as soon as you start talking about or envisaging such a limited exchange, you're beginning to make the kind of risk balance assessments that are made at At the start of any conflict or during any conflict, before you do something, before you open the second front in the Second World War, you do some mathematics, you work out what the loss is going to be, are you going to achieve your objective? As soon as you start involving nuclear weapons in that kind of normal, in inverted commas, grand strategic balancing of risk, your threshold is tumbling down. The taboo is at great risk under conflict. And the important thing And as Andy said, is to is to push nuclear employment way out in with a wide blue ocean gap between conflict, conventional conflict and strategic nuclear use. And the only way you do that is ensuring that the adversary cannot discount a strategic level response to the use of any nuclear weapon. And that is the UK's position. It has no other than strategic weapons. That's how we deter And I think that is inherently a much more stable place if everyone is in that position. Uh, For a lot of reasons, the UK has not yet adopted a sole purpose declaration, but it is the country, it is the nuclear weapon state whose posture and arsenal is the most directly linked with that today.
0: Thanks. That's a great setup for getting into um, what is a sole purpose nuclear doctrine. So if you could kind of, explain in in a few words you know what is this thing that you're talking about
1: well i'll 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 lead off since i i, I set this one up for the bund i uh, it's very simple it does what it says on the can and that is your nuclear weapons are held only to deter and if necessary to respond to the use of other nuclear weapons they have no response they have no role in deterring any attack of any other kind, other than nuclear weapons. So no other changes in arsenal or posture are necessary to achieve sole purpose. It is a, in itself, it is a massive simplification of why you hold nuclear weapons and what you will use them for. Um, And that's it. It, It's really simple in its heart, but it brings a number of benefits which we can explore later. The key point, though, is that it is different from no first use. And so at the moment, no country has a sole purpose declaration. Two countries of the P5 have no first use, which is sort of like sole purpose plus. So, So it says they would not use their nuclear weapons first, which implies that if they would use their nuclear weapons, it would be after a nuclear weapon attack. Because if they use them under any other circumstances, it wouldn't, it would be first use, therefore they wouldn't. So essentially it's sole purpose, but it's sole purpose plus. Um, But what I'm advocating and Andy's agreeing here is, is that the next step is not pushing nations who don't have a, a no first use declaration into no first use because that's been shown to be very difficult to achieve. But in many ways, sole purpose is a smaller step in that direction.
2: I absolutely agree with John, and that's why I'm so pleased that President-elect Biden has made it clear in his writings, in his speeches, that he does intend to adopt a sole purpose nuclear doctrine. Um, So I think it's definitely a step forward for the United States to declare uh, such a policy.
1: And I agree, I think, I mean, I have never been more uplifted since about 2012, which I've long thought has been the high watermark of our um, lessening of the risks of nuclear weapons um, and embracing broad arms control. Everything's been downhill since, until I read um, both the uh, statement that President-elect Biden said, immediately before the election of, uh, sorry, the inauguration of Donald Trump, and that which he has followed up now, because this is something the United States could choose to do unilaterally. It is something I would hope that the United States nuclear armed allies would either co-declare after uh, internal discussion, or very swiftly afterwards, Um, And as I've said before, I think the European nuclear powers are in a a much closer mindset to sole purpose anyway, and perhaps the main reason they haven't adopted it is to remain within the NATO context in lockstep with US policy. So I think a US declaration could very quickly uh, pave the way for um, at least three of the permanent five to, to make such a declaration. China, with a no-first-use, is already implicitly at sole purpose. So that would immediately isolate Russia in a out of the P5, in a unique, not sole purpose. And I would hope that that, rather like the PNIs and the declara- sorry, the presidential nuclear initiatives and the declarations at the time of Reagan and Gorbachev, that they may have a positive positive influence on on a Russia as well.
0: So, John, you mentioned that there are a number of benefits, tangible benefits, to sole purpose nuclear doctrine for the United States. And I'm curious, um, could you elucidate some of those?
1: Yes. I mean, from, the, from my determination, uh, sole purpose, as I've said, is a more restrictive doctrine where, in this case, U.S. nuclear weapons, their associated doctrine and postures exist only to deter against coercion or attack by other nuclear weapons, and and in my mind brings positive outcomes in three critical areas. It would strengthen deterrence because minimising the risk of miscalculation or misinterpretation in other areas of conflict would raise the threshold of the first use of nuclear weapons considerably. Sole purpose would also strengthen US national security because adopting a posture of sole purpose, while not in itself driving a change in the arsenal, could very quickly drive a change in the arsenal and allow the reallocation of significant sums of money currently earmarked for the current administration's expansion of the scale and scope of nuclear weapons properly to countering non-nuclear threats and particularly emergent non-nuclear threats by non-nuclear means. And the third one, and I think this this is a fundamental part of the next administration's view of reintegrating the United States in the international community, and in particular in the international community's uh, adherence to the nuclear non-proliferation treaty, a declaration of sole purpose would be a very, very strong signal, um, not only of the veracity, the truth in the US is commitment to the obligations within that treaty but also, and perhaps more importantly for this administration, a resumption of national leadership in this area, um, which has been waning in the most recent years.
2: Perhaps even more importantly than just declaring a a sole purpose policy, which after all, it's just words, right? Would be to align our nuclear forces, our nuclear posture in accordance with that doctrine. Um, Frankly, we would no longer need to plan for a limited nuclear exchanges um, with these smaller lower yield nuclear weapons, many of them on ambiguous platforms that are used uh, routinely in conventional conflict, conflict like nuclear armed uh, cruise missiles. There are also uh, conventionally armed cruise missiles which we uh, use um, not infrequently Uh, most recently in our strikes against uh, Syria. So I think it's one thing for the Biden administration to make the statement, to make this its so-called declaratory policy, but in order for our allies and adversaries to really uh, believe that we've adopted this doctrine, we would then have to adjust our force structure uh, in accordance with such a doctrine.
0: Yeah, so I think you know what's implied you know, in the sole purpose nuclear doctrine is not just to deter use, but also um, deter, by, to retaliate. And I think you hinted at these limited options. What would you say to those who argue that we need a proportionality of response?
2: I don't think uh, you can have a uh, proportional nuclear response that doesn't risk um, all out escalation the, um, you know, I, I understand that, that some people, you know, feel for, for, for humanitarian reasons that our president should have the option of retaliating against uh, the use of a small nuclear weapon with another, with our small nuclear weapon, and that wouldn't uh, kill as many people. Um, but unfortunately, There's no way to control that. Once once you break the taboo, uh, chances are it would quickly escalate out of control into a full-scale nuclear war. So you're not actually uh, saving lives. You're putting at risk many, many more lives. Indeed, perhaps uh, the entire species.
1: I think I put it even more strongly than that. Uh, Nuclear escalation control is an untested theory at best. And it's an awful lot to rest on such an untested theory. And the reason I don't believe, the the prime reason I don't believe it is possible is that exponents of uh, nuclear escalation control argue that even though the move to nuclear weapons could not be controlled, at the moment that you have exchanged nuclear weapons, with all of, frankly, the unknown effects on our completely globalized satellite communication-based Um, organisational structure and military structure at the moment going on. It is at that moment that the wise heads that couldn't get themselves to prevail five minutes ago before the nuclear weapons were launched will now, in this ensuing chaos, pandemonium, cloudy fog of war, suddenly see sense and stop escalating it. For me, that defies logic. It defies thousands of years of human war history, and it's not something we should take a punt on. And so I agree with Andy, and and the French put it extremely well, is that the thing that deters nuclear weapon use is not a proportional, calculated, like-for-like. It is the risk that a thoroughly disproportionate and country-damaging, and more importantly, regime-damaging response will come back. And you don't need like for like small nuclear weapons to do that and I know that the the counter argument is that it is not credible unless you have a proportional response at all levels but my statement is very clear on this my belief is very clear it is not that your adversary must be certain that you will respond it is that they must they they must be certain that you will not respond And as long as they are not certain that you will not respond, then you deter. And that is why uh, the need for this like-for-like proportional response rests on two fallacies, the one that you need it to deter and the second that escalation control is possible. I believe the former to be untrue and the second illogical and impossible to achieve.
2: Natasha, to put it in very simple terms, if I have a 40 caliber pistol, pointed at my adversary. Why would I need a switchblade?
0: I don't think you would. I, I think you said, you know, one way that the president-elect uh, Biden's administration could, could go about this is simply by making a unilateral declaration and, and allowing the the other P5 to follow. Is there another option to, to do back-channel discussions, or is this something you just think that um, the administration should lead out on?
1: This is going to be driven by uh, how your next administration wants to play itself on the world stage. I think it would be more powerful to do it, having had discussions with uh, the UK and France, in particular, as NATO nuclear allies, and obviously including the rest of NATO, but, but that would be a secondary, um, in, in my view, a secondary uh, level of discussion. But equally, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't wish to place that as a as a requirement because I think equally powerful would be a U.S. unilateral decision because I think, as I've said, it would be very quickly followed up by by the other two powers. It would be an inexorable force to align um, with the the U.S. because for, for for NATO to have a a wildly different and more aggressive posture than the U.S. is is simply not credible. Um, so, so I don't, I wouldn't place, I, I don't think either is, I think either is possible. I wouldn't, want, I wouldn't want it to be thought that you had to have that discussion because I, I believe that sole purpose is something that can be done in uh, a nuclear risk reduction thoroughly unilaterally for positive benefit. Other, other things that you might want to do um, might be better done as an alliance.
0: Andy, any last comments?
2: Well, but in any case, it's important that we first have close consultations with our allies. And if we can do this as a group um, of countries, it would be even more forceful. I think when Presidents Reagan and Gorbachev um, stated together that a nuclear um, war can never be won and must never be fought, um, that was very powerful. And some kind of a restatement along those lines by uh, all of the nuclear powers would um, would be uh, an important uh, signal to the rest of the world.
0: Great, well, this has been another fascinating discussion. I am looking forward to our next one, but thank, in the meantime, thank you for joining the show.
1: Thank
2: you, Natasha, John.
1: Andy, Natasha, as always, it's a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to On The Verge. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to leave us a review. For more information on the work of the Council on Strategic Risks, please visit us at councilonstrategicrisks.org or you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn.